Hey everybody, welcome to the second episode of Distorted by Glamour, the podcast that asks the question, could could we work like normal hours in film, please? Please. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a filmmaker. I'm here with... Gigi Hawkins. I am a filmmaker too. Today, we are talking about, is working in film an addiction? Is the phrase, this is my last job, the same thing as someone saying, this is my last drink? My last cigarette. Oh, this is my last cigarette. This is my last piece of chocolate. Yeah. If you work in film, you've absolutely had a coworker say, this is my last show, or fantasize about their alternative careers. And then return over and over again to work in film. What keeps us all coming back? Is it just the passion that we're hoping to move up in our careers, express ourselves creatively, do what we love in the like late stage capitalism sense of like, find a job beloved, you'll never work a day in your life? Or is film an addiction? Trigger warning, if you have people in your family or addiction issues yourself, we're going to be talking about a lot today. I do have addiction in my family, so I can definitely relate to that. And I feel like rarely do we talk about work as an addiction, but it is absolutely the most sort of like accepted and mainstream addiction. Well, and it's also the one where the cash flow is in the right direction. So you mm-hmm. get a lot of... This is good. This is a reward system. Oh, Yeah. I actually think workaholism is more of a real thing in some industries than others. We're going to get there, but I think it's arguable that film actually might be an industry where you can typify some aspects of working in it as an addiction. We'll get there. A lot of this is coming out of an article called An Addictive Environment, New Zealand Film Production Workers' Subjective Experience of Project-Based Labor, which was written by Jocelyn Handy and Lorraine Rowlands back in 2012. And what's amazing about this is that there's any research on this at all. And like the fact that there's academic research out there that's like, hey, I'm going to study film workers because I think it's interesting. And this article points to all these other articles that I've then been tracking down of like precarity in working in freelance film environments, all sorts of academic research on this area, which goes back to the 90s, which is also really disturbing because it's like, oh my God, things were also so bad in the 90s that this was already an academic research subject. I'm surprised that there has been research on it, but I'm I'm not surprised that we haven't heard about it because thinking of even the way we're on set, it's such a, again, coming back to the sort of like nature of shooting, it's such a, we have to get the shot, we have to get it in this amount of time. Like it's this all or nothing thinking on set. And that sort of like pushes the people who are working on set to in this secondary, second priority position. Yeah. Uh, This psychologist, Jocelyn Handy, who wrote the article, she was reading a bunch of the academic literature that was out there on this subject, which really kept going back to film workers were overpowered by the reward of being part of the creative process. There's a quote, creative workers are portrayed as somehow colluding with their own exploitation by freely choosing to remain within the creative industries because the actual or longed for rewards outweigh the disadvantages. Hmm. And I really loved that phrase, the longed for, because Mm -hmm. what's interesting about this is how many people are working in film because of the promise of something better later. Like, oh, I'll do this job and then I'll build this relationship and then I'll move up to this thing. Mm -hmm. And then as you slowly move up the things, it's still miserable. People are still working crazy long hours and it's still really difficult. But what's interesting is that Handy thought that this was an oversimplification, Mm. that it wasn't just this like thrill that it was actually a little bit more complicated than that, which is really interesting. So we should talk about 
addiction. Mm-hmm. Addiction really sort of emerged in the idea in the late 19th century, 1880s, and it was really mostly focused on like alcohol and drugs in the beginning. Going back to the Civil War era, there were groups that were already working on alcoholism. The Washingtonians was like a Civil War area group. You can actually find uh, Abraham Lincoln's speech to the Washingtonians. Mm-hmm. What you start getting to in addiction studies is that it's the economic system, the social bonds and activities that are breaking down that lead to addiction. So it's not just human beings are genetically predisposed to have alcoholism or drug addiction. Mm. It's human beings need all of these things, social bonds, religious things, like all of these things that sort of feed together to create the feeling of being part of a community. And by the civil war in America, we're seeing the rise of industrialization. We're seeing small communities spreading across the West. And like, that's breaking down a lot of those bonds, right? Like, you know, if you fled Ireland for the new world, you don't have your parents around as a social network. You don't have all the people you grew up with as a social network. And then that is likely, according to modern thinking on addiction, part of the weakening of the social connections that leads to addiction. Are you familiar with Rat Park? No. So are you familiar with the idea that they do all these studies with rats? And if you give rats the option of drinking morphine-laced water, 5% of the rats are going to drink all the morphine-laced water they can. So there's just addicts out there. And no matter what you do, they're going to get addicted. And it doesn't matter if you're helping them or not. So it's kind of like a defeatist. It is what it is. And they're just going to be this way mentality. It's really a tool in justifying the drug war, which is like, you just are like that. And like, we should just put you away. What's interesting is that in the late 70s, a researcher named Bruce Alexander did research where he was like, Wait a minute. These rats are in miserable cages. They have no rat friends. They're not near their rat parents. They have no rat community. Yeah. What if we built rat heaven, rat park? We did, you know, an experiment where some of the rats were in cages Uh and some of the rats were in rat park where like they had rat friends, they had rat lovers, you know, their rat parents were around. I want to go to rat park. Yeah. Rat park sounds super fun, right? And unsurprisingly, dramatically lower consumption of the morphine-addled mm. water. The The argument he's making, and an argument that I agree with and a lot of people would make, is that addiction is actually a complicated thing that involves many different aspects of society. So in recovery programs, there's a conversation that happens a lot, which is referring to something as a dual malady, a combination of a spiritual malady or a social malady, feeling disconnected from your peers, feeling purposeless, feeling isolated, and the allergy. And the allergy half of the dual malady comes from the fact that like, like if you take alcohol, there are people that take a drink of alcohol and, and are like, ooh, that makes me a little uncomfortable and nauseous and they don't even finish their drink. But then there are also people who take it and it makes them feel better. And the argument that a lot of recovery programs make is that that's an allergy, that's a non-standard response. And so if you have a dual malady, if you have both the spiritual malady and the allergy, you're more likely to become addicted. That's what drives addiction. So the argument sort of fits in with a lot of addiction studies, which is that it's like breakdown in social networks, breakdown in a Mm -hmm. sense of community, distant from family, create that social malady where you don't feel connected. And then you combine that with an allergy, which gives you that thrill. And it becomes this Mm -hmm. sort of combination. I mean, look, this is obviously something that is different for different substances. Like, you know, I think this is probably true for alcohol in terms of the allergy. 
I think right. 99% of us are allergic to fucking morphine if the allergies response is feeling great after. And so I think like it's complicated. Yeah. And coming from, again, like a family that is genetically predispositioned to addiction, I think back to when I went to college for the first time and had a complete breakdown of my community starting from scratch. And not only was you know, drinking part of the culture at University of Michigan. But I think it was just this like positive reinforcement around letting alcohol be a social lubricant. And then everyone was doing it around me. So it became this sort of cycle of this helps me feel more part of a community. Then we continue to drink. And then that is rewarded because I make friends in that. And I can see how, like, again, one of the things that I love about being on set is the like family summer camp vibes yes. where you know we are connecting with people and we're making something together and one of the things you mentioned was creative workers longing for the reward and of course it's more complicated than that but it's really easy to look back on a horrible time that you survived together and like then see the community and having like survived being in the trenches together and give yourself a pat on the back. Yes. And it actually shows up in a lot of this literature on addiction where like they're interviewing all these film workers and they're like, you think these people are your best friends. You work together for three years and then you see them six months later and you're like, we have nothing in common. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I think the college example is a really good one. In a lot of other countries, college is not a go away thing. Right. Like Germany does not have nearly as many dorms as we do because for the most part, you like continue to live at home when you go to college, apparently is what I've read. Right. So the party culture is just different. But But it's also like, well, you know, if you have that connection with your parents where you're like still seeing them for a Sunday dinner, mm -hmm. still seeing them for breakfast a couple days a week. You've got this bigger network of connections that's yeah. still feeding you. You are less likely to binge drink. Yes. And so the American culture of college is a faraway thing you leave to, you sever all your connections to the past. Mm -hmm. All of your old high school friends are gone. You get to reinvent yourself is a phenomenon that is more likely to lead to like addictive style binge drinking. Right. And it is like very similar to what life working in media is like, where you show up to a film shoot and all of your old friends are gone. So it's like this continual re-breaking mm -hmm. of old connections and a desire to forge new connections that can be complicated in terms of thinking about like a holistic idea of all the pillars, like religion, if you're religious, or just regularly seeing family or cultivating real hobbies mm -hmm. that like all of the things that make you feel like a holistically integrated person tend to get thrown out in the film industry, wow. which is a good time to start talking about the cycle of addiction. And this shows up in a bunch of the literature. I have sort of my own personal names for the three stages. The three stages in the Charles Haynes system of addiction are good, good with problems, and bad. Mm. Most addictions start with a good phase. And I think this is equally true for drug abuse and alcoholism and also working on film sets. And this shows up again and again in the literature, in the in those articles, in anecdotally, the people I know, like, it has to start with a good bit. Like, almost nobody ever starts with the bad bit of their addiction. There has to be a moment where it feels amazing, either to be drinking a lot and feeling the confidence it gives you and feeling engaged in the world and feeling like you're yourself for the first time mm -hmm. or whatever feelings you're getting from alcohol. Or if you have chronic pain and you're getting addicted to opioids and mm -hmm. in the beginning, the opioids actually calm your chronic pain yeah. for the first time in years. I mean, you know, heartbreaking when you hear, uh, when you read about Kurt Cobain's experiences with heroin and, right. and how, you know, he had had stomach pain his whole adult life. Mm -hmm. And it was the first thing that worked when it worked in the beginning and you're like, it was relief. tremendous relief. 
and film sets, especially if you didn't come from LA or New York or you have dreamed of this thing and then you get to this thing, that summer camp atmosphere is intoxicating, mm-hmm. especially if you've worked a normal job for a while. If you've like, oh, yeah, you mean me when I get on set, I'm like, you guys. We get to be here. We get to be on set and I don't have to be at a desk selling my soul. Yeah. It's like that thing of like, well, most normal jobs kind of suck. The trade-off of those normal jobs is you're there a predictable amount of time. You can go to a barbecue on Saturday. You can go to a family dinner Sunday. You've got that predictable stability, but it kind of sucks. And there are so many things about a film set that make it magical. Magical is the exact word I was thinking about. But one interesting key of this first stage of addiction is that what tends to be true is that your other infrastructure tends to stay in place. Mm. So you still have your friends and family from before addiction. You still have your hobbies from before addiction. And most of those require some sort of regularity. And the fact that you dip out of them is like noted on, but it's not a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Like I remember my first couple big jobs where like I would see a friend again and they'd be like, oh, where have you been? And I was like, oh, I was on this job and it was so cool and it was a film shoot and we were doing this. And then we sort of like got back in the rhythm of hanging out again. Mm-hmm. But like friendships require a rhythm. Like there's a rhythm or a pace to it. Like let's say you're dating someone. If it starts to stretch more than two weeks between seeing each other, are you still dating? Right. Like, I don't know anybody who, like, is dating someone and they see them every two months. Yeah. I know married people who work in the film industry who really only get to spend a day with their partner every two months. But that's a different issue. There's a a rhythm to all of those things. There's a regularity. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why, if you are religious, churches on Sundays, Mm -hmm. like, regular maintenance is required for those structures to work. Right, right. And in the beginning... Your addictive thing has not had a chance to thoroughly break those structures. And most of those structures are robust enough Mm -hmm. to cut you a little slack. When I was first researching this stuff or like talking to people about it, my suspicion was that these stages had to do with, oh, well, in good, like in alcoholism, in good, your liver is still working. And then good with problems, your liver isn't working as well anymore. And then bad, your liver isn't processing as well. Mm. And my theory was very biological. I was thinking about humans as robots. But the more I read about this and the more I looked at like the way this has worked at the film industry in my life and other things, I think it is as much or more about your relationship with all the structures that are supposed to make you be a human and how the addiction changes those relationships that move you between the stages of good to good with problems and then to bad. Mm. And I think what happens is as the addiction continues, it starts to break your links to those other things that make you a whole person. So if you have a hobby it gets harder and harder to continue to practice that hobby because the regularity is much harder to schedule around your addiction. Mm-hmm. The last link to go is often family just because they're the ones who will tend to, Step up. yeah, they're the ones who have to take you in even if you've been shitty. I think in addiction and again, thinking of stuff that's happening with my family, it's like you don't want to see your loved ones fail. You don't want to see them hurt. So you want to support them even while they're going through whatever they're going through. And you don't necessarily like... You're not always aware of why they're not showing up at things. Like eventually, if they're showing up stumble down drunk. So like, I guarantee you there's people who are addicted who lose friendships where the friend never knows. Right. You know, it is literally like this person just doesn't show up for me. Like we make plans and they don't come and I threw a party and they didn't arrive. And like eventually that breaks those bonds. The big network bonds that you need to feel like you are part of a community 
end up breaking down. And I think that's what leads to good with problems Mm -hmm. is you are still capable of getting a thrill out of the addiction. Set is still fun. The work is still good. When it's good, it's the best thing ever. But because set life, six day weeks, 12 to 14 hour days, you don't see your friends as regularly. Those friendship groups break down. Even if you're really diligent, And this was the one that really got me in my late 20s, early 30s. I was super diligent of like every day off. I want to go find my people. Like I volunteered at this bike shop. I'd go to the bike kitchen. I'd see what was going on. I'd like, if there's a bike ride, I'd go on the bike ride. Like I was super like, I understood that community was important. And yet you disappear for three months on a job. You come back. Mm -hmm. Even if you show up, like everybody else hung out without you for three months. So like the dynamic has changed. How was it when you would get back from these like three month stints and then come back? Like, what did you feel? I would feel completely disoriented, very isolated, very out of sync. And like I had to restart life. Mm. It would feel like I'd have to pull. This might be a really old reference. I don't know if lawnmowers still have pull starts, but like I had a cable start Mm -hmm. lawnmower when I was mowing, mowing lawns as a kid. And like, I felt like I was like, all right. Let's bend over. Let's pull it a couple times. Let's like, let's get my back into it and get this motor of a life started again. Mm. And I wouldn't actually do it for like a week after coming back. I remember so clearly, like I just came back from like only six weeks out of the country, but it was like six weeks out of the country. And I remember I got back on like a Sunday and like that Friday, I was like, okay, weekend's here. I'm going to pull the cord and like get in touch with people and like, let them know I'm back and like try and see people. But The out-of-town job was, you know, I was down to 160 pounds when I got back from that job. It was like a jungle-heavy job. Wow. And those first four days back, I didn't have anything in me to, like, try and restart my social life and see my friends. You were just straight up recovering from all of that and in doing so, isolating yourself from your community. Yeah, just opening mail and, and doing laundry and sleeping. And When did it get bad? Like, when did you realize that this isn't sustainable? Was there a moment? Was there a a time on set? Or was it kind of like a gradual realization? Well, so bad for me really came. And like, so, you know, bad is when addiction has robbed you of all the other things. Mm -hmm. And what I think is particularly interesting about bad is I think that what starts to happen is, is all the other things start to go away. All of your human needs you start to need the addiction to provide them. You want it to provide the feeling of family and the feeling of connection. And I think it's unfair to film work or to alcohol to provide all of those needs. And so I think the reason why it becomes bad in the end is because you're like, okay, well, I'm not really spending time with other people. I'm not really maintaining these other social connections. All those other things are so tenuous. You end up needing all of those things from work, Mm -hmm. which is unfair to ask work to deliver all those things. Work shouldn't provide you a sense of community and a sense of volunteerism and a sense of family. Like that's not what work is for. It should be nice. People should be friendly to each other. There is a exchanging war stories of, oh, and then this happened on this set. And and there's almost this like camaraderie in the misery, you know, when reflecting on it and pushing for those long hours, but people continue to return to them because again, they're like, oh, well, this idea is really good. That might be like one element of the addiction. No, I think it is. And I think that people, because of the addiction under earn, I think people have skills and are willing to go out to work on film shoots at less money than they deserve. Mm. So let's go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the addiction model. 
and an article called An Addictive Environment, New Zealand Film Production Workers' Subjective Experience of Project-Based Labor by Jocelyn Handy and Lorraine Rowland. In their interviews, Rowland and Handy found that freelance filmmakers universally described the three stages of addiction in talking about how they started in film. Respondents explained the excitement of getting the first job, the high they got working in a creative role that couldn't be found elsewhere, but then also the all-consuming nature of the work and how that eventually caused them to lose social connections outside the industry. This loss of social connections left many itching to get back to work as soon as they finished weeks of all-consuming work. So what we see is a cycle. So there's a quote, during film projects, freelancers are creatively engaged, focused, and totally enmeshed. Mm -hmm. Once their contract finishes, freelancers are often left unoccupied, fatigued, and socially isolated. Under these conditions, the lure of the next project is heightened as it offers an escape from the loneliness and emptiness Ugh. of unemployment. And I'm like, boom, yes, yes, that, I know that. And the solution to that is making the work less insane. Yes. So that when the job wraps, you can hang out on Friday night with some of the same people you hung out with the week before <laughs> and not try and rebuild relationships with people you haven't seen in five weeks. It just sounds like an emotional roller coaster of highs and lows always. Yeah. Now, some of you might be saying, this is all research on New Zealand. Why is that relevant? So one of the interesting things is that the film industry in New Zealand is highly non-union. And that is a factor. And it's not really, it's never really grown to be enough of a thing. And everyone's been so afraid of cutting into what little work makes it there that it's still non-union. That's part of it. But also there's a bunch of research on mental health effects of working in film from the UK and Australia that we're going to talk about. Mm. Um, so... Uh, in January 2017, a locations manager f known for his work on Harry Potter and Pirates of the Caribbean took his own life, saying how lonely he'd felt in his work and calling on the film industry to do more to look after their own. This kicked off a few organizations to do research on mental health in film. The UK research was uh, done by the Work Foundation, working with Lancaster University Management School. And holy shit, the results are batshit. 87% of survey respondents who worked in film and television had experienced a mental health problem compared to like 65% in the normal UK life. 64% wow. of respondents had been depressed compared to just 42% of normal people. 55% of people they surveyed had contemplated taking their own life compared to only about 20% nationally. 10% wow. reported that they had attempted to end their life compared to only 7% nationally. Wow. The only two areas where film workers weren't worse off than anybody else, everybody else were postnatal depression, but I think that's probably because they were having fewer kids because they didn't have time to have kids, yes. and phobias. They have fewer phobias than the national average. And I was like, well, that's because we're not afraid of shit in the film industry. So in Australia, a group called Entertainment Assist, working with Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia, also did a mental health survey they found that in Australia, among entertainment professionals, suicide is double the general population. Moderate to severe anxiety is 10 times higher. Depression is five times higher. Suicidal ideation is nine times higher. Oh, my God. Five industry professionals attempt to take their own lives a week. In the Australian reports, respondents reported levels of alcohol and drug use much higher than in the normal population. Ooh. Methamphetamine use is eight times greater than the average. Ecstasy use is seven times greater. Cocaine use is 12 times greater. And pain pills is seven times greater. And tranquilizers is nine times greater than the general population. So there are arguments to be made that correlation is not causation. There are arguments to be made that it's like, well, 
the film industry is an industry that like will put up with drug users Mm -hmm. and it's an industry where we don't do a lot of background checks on set work. So like if you've already gotten busted once from cocaine, you're, it's probably going to be easier to get a job on set than it is at UPS because they do background checks and film doesn't. And it's also an industry that like is all or nothing and you get these big work binges. And so like, Mm -hmm. but like, I think we also can say that it's related to like the addictive nature of the film industry and that many people have multiple addictions going at once because once you've broken down the social barriers and the whole, once you've made your rat cage really miserable, you're not living in rat park anymore. You're living in a dirty rat cage. The other addictions also bloom and blossom. But I have like a huge issue with the Australia study, which is, so they make all these recommendations for what they should mm-hmm. do. And their first recommendation is, and there's a quote, passion. A ma- um, I can't do an Australian <laughs> accent. A major theme. Um, a, a major theme emerging from the research is that industry workers ex- express their overwhelming passion for their creative work. This is a strength of the entertainment industry and can be an antidote against many of the negative aspects found in this report. Mm. It is suggested this passion can be a powerful element to bind the industry and a motivator to work against the negative culture within entertainment. End quote. That's fucking stupid. The problem is the passion. <laughs> yeah. And like, listen, we want there to be passion but not used against the workers, not used against balance and and what having a work-life balance. Yeah, and that's the thing, is the passion's the problem. We are so passionate about what we do that when presented with the choice, because the choice is right now, do this 14 hours, either sit at a computer and edit for 14 hours or be on set for 14 hours, like, or don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, but I love this. Right. This feels like meaning. Saying that the solution comes from the passion is... The only solution we get out of passion is recognizing it and recognizing that we need to build something that limits our passion, corrals our passion, and allows us to have all these other things. I mean, in conclusion, in my mind, working in film is absolutely qualifies as an addiction. Mm -hmm. Now, it's complicated. There are people who are like, it's not an addiction if there's no chemical reaction, right? It's really easy with like fentanyl, oxy, alcohol to be like, oh, this chemical causes this specific allergy and that response is different. And then in the right environment, you can't stop using it. Right. You know, sex addiction goes back and forth where some people say it's an addiction. Some people say it's not. But I think when you have a job that you can't stop doing, that when you're not doing it, you feel like withdrawal and you're drawn back to it Mm -hmm. like outside of financial incentive. You're like, oh, I got to go back. I got to get I got to get, you know, back on the next set. I was reading an interview with Ron Howard, Mm -hmm. who was like, sometimes I feel like an old sea captain who's always trying to get back on another ship. Mm. And so I think for me, I think whether or not we can declare an addiction the way alcohol or oxy are irrelevant to me. Mm -hmm. I think we have to treat it the same way you treat an addiction. Yeah. And I think looking at things like food addiction and sex addiction are probably better models Mm -hmm. because we're never going to have a full abstinence model, right? Right, right. Like saying to people addicted to film, just never make a movie again. Yeah. You would not win friends or influence people in any way. They'd be like, fuck you. (laughs) I'm making movies. And, you know, I'm I'm friends with a few people who've like dabbled in like sex addiction treatment. Uh, I don't know that world well. But from what I know, talking to people in those spaces is it's about moderation and about what your relationship is to it. Yeah. In food, you hear this phrase all the time of like baseline behavior. You know, you have the foods that you feel are triggering. You have the the behavior that you feel is inappropriate and appropriate. And it's like, of course, you're going to keep eating. Dealing with your food issue is not, I'm never going to eat again. It's I'm going to eat a moderate and appropriate amount that feels right for me. Mm -hmm. It's a gradual process of relearning and re kind of like structuring 
wondering how you're thinking about it. And you're focusing on building a great rat park for yourself. Yes. You're focusing on seeing your friends regularly, seeing your family regularly, volunteering somewhere, having multiple pillars yeah. of a life, like a spiritual and a community and all of those pillars, which you can keep up when time allows you to do it. So for me, I mean, I keep coming back to the 40 hour work week, like Monday through Friday, nine to five for so many reasons. Right. I, I hate commuting. Like it can be 10 to six or it can be seven to four yeah. or whatever it is if you don't want to sit in rush hour. But like the beauty of that schedule is that the schools are on that schedule. Right. The rest of the world is on that schedule and you can participate in life mm -hmm. as we've currently structured it. Yeah. And I think that's really, really really important in treating addiction and we don't let anyone who works in film do that right now right and i think that's a huge reason we're in the situation we're in right you know we talk a lot about like how did we get here because right. whenever this comes up in film people are always like well what about doctors doctors go through medical residency and they work insane hours First off, it's only a couple of years that they work those hours and then they go back to working something closer to normal unless they're like an ER doctor. But also the motherfucker who invented that was a cocaine addict. Yes. William Stewart Halstead, who invented <laughs> medical residencies, was like full on addicted to cocaine. Wow. Wow. And so it's like, do we want to continue this system that was invented a hundred years ago. Irrationally. Yeah. Like, could we look at residency and be like, do we actually need to work these hours in order to learn medicine? Like his theory was you needed to go balls to the wall in residency for like all of these insane hours to really like get it in your system. And I'm like, well, that seems dumb to me. Yeah. And I bet, I bet if you study it, residents make a lot of mistakes they wouldn't make if they'd had a real night's sleep. Right. Right. So I think that the industry encourages addiction by breaking all of your other bonds. And I think the solution to that is a life where you can go to a friend's barbecue every Saturday. Yeah. So like I write and direct, but I have yet to be paid to do either of this. So it's really, really hard to turn off. I write every weekend, like usually Saturday and Sunday. So, and I don't know how to not do it because there's always more work to be done. Though I do know that that rest, that taking a break, that going out into the real world usually helps the creative. But still, I, I there's this thing, and again, this is coming off of a world of working in advertising and New York media grind, but I have trouble turning it off. And I actually started working with a therapist in, two months ago. Thank you, Covered California, for hooking that up. Um, but we came up with a schedule that is writing first thing in the morning, like usually 7.30 to around 10. And then I work out and then I do the sort of like life management stuff, job stuff that is, you know, tedious, but I get to like use all my creative energy in the beginning. And, and honestly, the structure is very simple and it's like paring down the schedule. And I used to, I mean, you know, Charles, we, you've seen my calendar. It is insane every moment scheduled. So I'm like having to unlearn this work addiction chain to my email culture and, and lifestyle that I had. And, and I am still, still learning. We, we all have to do whatever we can, right? Like mm -hmm. I've now, since I've gotten really radicalized about this, like I'm never going to shoot a 12 hour day again. And if I do, everyone's going to get paid super duper well and eat the equivalent of lobster at the end of the day. I'm allergic yes. to lobster. But like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just shoot eight hour days now. And like, for me, it's really getting this idea of like moderation. Easy does it going naturally at a, at a, at a sustainable pace 
is really hard once you've been through the cycle of addiction. For me, I had to take time off. I left the film industry for a year. um, And I had to reapproach the film industry in a fresh way that felt more sustainable and more moderate and like a good, Mm -hmm. no, not everybody has the luxury of like being able to go do this other job for a year. That was like a real gift in my life that I'm grateful for. But like finding a way to like do a reset and then change the way you approach the industry. And it's really hard because the industry wants you to go this other way. Like the industry is trying to pull you. Right. Right. Yeah. But like the real solution is like recognizing that if you are going to survive this industry long-term, you need to see your friends on the weekends and call your mom. Yeah. And see your parents semi-regularly and like volunteer somewhere. And you know, be there for bedtime. If you've got kids, like all of that is part of what makes you a human that makes you able to do the thing that feels so good. And like, I tell you what, if you don't do all of that and you become like, if you, if you reach the bad stage of addiction to the film industry, it gets really bad where you're like, Oh, there's nothing else. I'm like, that's not great. Yeah. And, and also I think the work will suffer. I ultimately think we'll tell better stories by being better people to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great conclusion. I think that's like the way to do it. Film, addictive, needs a warning label.